God has written an entire book to help us know how He wants us to live in everyday situations. The book is called Proverbs, and we are in the midst of a series that is helping us know how to pass this godly common sense on to our children. Today, our study leader, Dave Wurtson, continues our discussion of what it means to be a good neighbor. If you follow all the proverbial principles, can you expect everything to go well? As we join Dave, we will discover that even good, godly neighbors can go through tough times of intense pain and testing. The book of Proverbs says if you're walking away from God, if you're walking away from a life of skill, if you're not allowing the Holy Spirit to help you to live according to these principles, you're headed for disaster. And the tragedy is that a lot of people that are doing that, it's like they've taken a moral tranquilizer. They're asleep, they're, they're, they're lackadaisical, they think everything is going along well, but it isn't. Tragedy's going to strike. And oh, what a dread it is to face tragedy without God. Now to balance that off, the scripture will say that we as believers can face suffering, we can face crises, but I'd rather go through crises and suffering with him and have him be my daddy, even when I don't understand him, than to be someone who's alienated from God, who can't really call him your father because you've never been born into his family, and to have to face his judging tragedies and suffering that he will bring. The scriptures do teach that God will allow suffering to severely discipline those that are rejecting him. And that's the dread that it's talking about here in verse 25. This sudden disaster, this ruin that can overtake the wicked. There's no need for you to have that dread. The book of Proverbs is saying that you can trust in the Lord with all your heart. You can build your life on a reverent relationship with him. Now we change gears a little bit and talk about just some real practical everyday things. And I'm really concerned about this. You can wonder, why don't unbelieving people receive Christ? And I want to share with you what I believe the number one reason that Satan really uses as far as our responsibility is concerned, why unbelievers don't receive Christ. Because of this phrase, they say they're a Christian, but. They say they're a Christian, but. And I think all of us, when we look at these next portions of the scriptures, we need to ask ourselves, what are we known as in our community? Now, Satan's going to constantly try to twist that. Satan will constantly try to produce a lie, and we can't help that. There are going to be misunderstandings. But I want to ask you a question. What does our community think? You know what we have a tendency to do? The church did so-and-so. The church made a mistake at so-and-so. The elders and deacons made a mistake at so-and-so. It's easy to talk like that. But I want to share something with every one of you. You know who church is for your friends? You. And much more important than that, you know who Jesus Christ is for your friends? You. If you claim the name of Jesus, if you claim to be his child, then you are Jesus Christ for your friends. And you know where the rubber really needs to meet the road? Tomorrow morning in business. And that's what the Bible talks about. Some of you have the idea 
that the Bible talks about all these holy things that you relegate to Sunday morning and you live religious for about two hours from 9 o'clock to 11 o'clock on Sunday morning, but that's really all that the Bible has relevance to. I've got news for you. The Bible is all about business ethics. It's all about living with your neighbors. It's all about courts. It's all about city council meetings. It's all about those management meetings that you get into. It's about labor management negotiations. It's about interrelationships on school boards. It's about working with teachers. The Bible is about Monday morning living. And we begin with the principle that you would read and say, ah, oh, you know, that's no big deal, but let's look carefully at it. We want to look at some neighborhood ethics. The first thing I want to warn you about is beware of the tomorrow fraud. And I want all of us to ask ourselves this question. Are we a manana person? Let's look at it. It says in verse 27, we just come from this high, lofty spiritual principle. Verse 27, verse 26, For the Lord will be your confidence, and keep your foot from being snared. So here's a person who's really putting their confidence in the Lord. How does that person who's really trusting the Lord look on Monday morning? Maybe they sing with a beautiful baritone Sunday, Sunday morning. But what about Monday morning? The writer says, don't withhold good from those who deserve it. And the Hebrew text literally has, don't withhold good from the rightful possessors of it. When it is in your power to act. Now this covers a lot of bases. First of all, it's saying as we come in contact with needy people, legitimately needy people, not people who can work. The scripture has another principle for them. If you don't work, you don't eat. But as we go through life, we come across people who have needs along the road of life. The parable of the Good Samaritan is a good example of this in Luke chapter 10. The question was asked, who is my neighbor? And this whole section here is about neighbors. And the Lord says that your neighbor is the person that you are confronted with as you go through the journey of life who needs your help. And you have the power to act. And what it says is, if you have the power to act, do it. Now, don't feel guilty about what you can't do. You see, the problem is we look at millions of people starving in Ethiopia, and we go into, you know, our computer gets overloaded, it flashes out on the screen, can't handle it, so we go right on and forget about it. So we don't do anything. We also don't do anything for some of the needy people that we're confronted with every single day. The skillful, wise person realizes they're not going to set everything right in the world. Only Jesus can do that when he comes back. But that doesn't mean that we don't do the good now, in this moment, at this time. If somebody needs our help, we meet that need. I want to encourage you, you have a lot of that in your heart. In fact, I came from the Northeast where you don't even look at people in the eye. You mind your own business. You do your own thing. When you go to New York City, you walk fast and you carry a big stick. And you've taught me a lot about caring and about even recognizing strangers. And I want to motivate you in that. When you go to the hospital, when somebody has a need, you know, some of you could have tremendous ministries. Some of you enjoy visiting people in the hospital. You know, you can go to the hospital and you could spend almost all day long at the different hospitals just meeting needs. You never know the effects that that's going to have on someone's life. You can do the good. It's not a big thing. To be honest with you, Satan tempts me a lot. 
Because I always wanted to be a doctor. That's what I wanted to be when I was a kid. I've shared that honestly with you. And a lot of times the devil brings into your mind, why don't you just drop it all? You could get into medical school now. You know, you've got all this training. Why don't you just drop it all? Then you could really meet needs. And the Lord Jesus reminds me again and again, David, it's a teamwork. You've got guys in your church that meet those other needs. And you've got to strengthen them. But there's a role that you need to play. And in the ultimate scheme of things, what I've gifted you to do is very important. And when you talk to me over a bedside, there's tremendous power there. And brothers and sisters, what I want you to realize is it's not just a preacher power. It's a believer power. You all have that power. That's what this verse is talking about. Being a good neighbor. And I want to challenge you. You know, we will have to build monstrous churches. We'll have to start new churches all over the area. The Holy Spirit would move in a mighty way if we allowed the Spirit to help us to be good neighbors. Because a church family builds confidence in the message of Christ. Not so much by what I do in this moment, but what we do out there Monday morning as we meet those in need that need our help. Who are the people that have a right to your help? Who are the people that have a claim on your life? And I want you to notice something. It doesn't say it's a nice charity thing for us to give to those in need. It uses a word that's, that's Baal, the masters of it. You know what the scripture is saying? It's not, just a, it's not just something I can decide to do from time to time. The Lord God in heaven says that those who I meet in life who need my help, I owe it to them. Paul put it this way. I will owe no man anything but to love. I have a debt of love to pay. Oh, that's going to move mountains. Who's the neighbor in your life that you can help? You know what hurts me? Satan sometimes produces more neighborly love among rank unbelievers than he does in a church family. Why? Because Satan knows if he can create a false neighborliness among unbelievers... And if he can destroy neighborliness among believers, then he can destroy the authenticity of the witness of Christ. And so we need to join together and just pray to the Lord to help us to be good neighbors. Those who deserve our help, we need to make clear decisions about what we can do and do it now. Don't say, I'll do it tomorrow. Don't say manana. It's today. The next area is a very practical area along this line of beware the tomorrow fraud. Don't say to your neighbor, verse 28, come back tomorrow, I'll give it to you tomorrow when you have it with you today. This also relates not just to me, the need of the poor, but we've got a lot of bosses. There's a lot of you that make decisions about salaries. And I want to share with you, I know what the executive world is like. Man, I don't live in a glass case somewhere. I know it's dog-eat-dog, -dog, but you're a believer. You're not working for Chaparral Steel, Gifford Hill, TXI, General Motors. You're not working for those companies, really. You're not going to ultimately give an account to them. You're going to ultimately give an account to the Lord God of the universe. I'm serious. I'm going to give an account. And what this text is saying is pay a fair wage. Now, it's not saying to pay illegitimate wages. Because labor can make the same mistakes as management can. But we as believers need to rise up above all this and be representatives of a king who does things right and fair. And deep in your heart, you know what is right and fair. 
And what the Lord Jesus is telling you, if you have the power over people and you're responsible for salaries, it says, first of all, pay them on time. Pay them on time. If you have the capital, don't invest it out, make a lot of interest and put off your employees. It's wrong to do that. In the ancient world, it was a very, very clear thing. You see, in the ancient world, I would go and work for Boaz, for example, in the book of Ruth. The book of Ruth pictures a scene where everybody's working out in the field. Boaz, the, the owner of the field, comes out, and they say, may the Lord bless you, and he says, may the Lord bless you. What a beautiful labor relationships. But they would work all day long, and then they would be going home. And on the way back home, they would need to purchase a great big loaf of pita bread. They'd have to get some beverage for their family. And Boaz was supposed to pay them. If a guy worked all day in your field, don't put him off. Pay him before he leaves. And what the writer tells us in the law, in the book of Leviticus, it says you pay him because he's depending upon it. Very important. You see, as you move up in management, you don't need, you don't need all that you get. Some of you, you know, have money in the bank and you have CDs and you can weep and wail about how helpless you are. You're not really helpless. There are people that are working with you. They don't have a dime ahead. They're just living from one thing to the next. In fact, a whole lot of people are like that. And the book of Proverbs is saying if you're in business, if you're a born-again believer, never say manana when you can do it today. Now, it's not saying sometimes we can't. It's saying if it's in the power of your hand, if you can do it, don't ever put someone off. You see, there's power in putting someone off. There's power in saying, oh, you come back tomorrow. That's what officials like to do. If you lived in South America, those of you that have been missionaries in South America, the whole culture can be manana because it gives you power over somebody. And it's all manipulation. It's wrong. We do the same thing here in the States. What it's saying is that a skillful, born-again believer that's living wisely will never put someone off if they've got the ability to meet the need today. Try that. Some of you are going to be in management meetings. You stand up for that, and it'll cost you. Because I know the world works. Man, I need to watch out for what I got. Man, I need to hold on to what I got. Man, everyone's trying to really wipe me out. You're right. Everyone is trying to wipe everyone else out. And we need to rise up above that. The book of Proverbs is saying it's a very simple thing, very clear. Don't say to your neighbor, come back later. I'll pay you tomorrow. I'll give it to you tomorrow if you have it today. When somebody works for you, give them a fair wage. Give it to them on time. Beware of all this fair and love, war. You all heard that. And friendship. The next verse talks to us about what I think is the greatest traitor in all of life. It's become very famous in literature when Julius Caesar says, et tu Brutus, you too Brutus. And that hurt more than anything else. It's not the dagger of an enemy that kills you. It's the dagger of a friend. Brothers and sisters, friendship is one of the most vital, one of the most special things that God can give us. The wise man will have some intimate friends, friends that really trust him, friends that really depend upon him. And what the book of Proverbs says in verse 29 is don't ever cultivate harm against your neighbor while he's living trustfully near you. What it's saying here is don't wipe someone out who's depending upon you. I want to share something with you. 
Friendship is built upon trust. This church family depends upon trust. And I want all of you to stop and ask yourself, do you trust one another? Now, I, more than anybody else, know what's going on in this church family because I listen to you by the hour. And if I told what was really happening in lives, because it's true of any group of people, some of you would say, man, the whole human race is messed up. And they are. And it's only the grace of God. In fact, I think one of the greatest temptations for a pastor is that he gets down on his people. He doesn't hope in his people anymore. He doesn't believe in his people anymore. And I constantly cry out to God for the, as, I, as I have to deal with the wrong side, many times with sin. I cry out to God and say, God, help me not to have a false view of what you're really doing because God's grace is at work. But what I want to communicate to you from the depths of my heart is that I trust you. And I want all the men to trust one another. You can't allow distrust to come in. You can't build families on distrust. And it's a very deep-seated thing. And Satan works hard to generate it. And what you start to do when you distrust is you start to cultivate plots. And all of you have been involved in church families who have done that. They cultivate plots against their brothers. And the way that works is, and I'll just make, you know, just make it personal, apply it to me. This isn't happening, but it could happen. I start messing around a little bit. I start being lazy. I don't really study the way that I should. I don't minister to people the way that I should. I start coasting because I've been here a long time. It's always a temptation. So what happens? Some brothers begin to notice it. Some brothers begin to say, hey, you know, David, when he speaks to us on Sunday morning, just doesn't seem to know the text as well as he used to. Or he seems to just be, be giving us warmed over material. It doesn't feel like he's been into it this week. And you start to be disturbed about it. What do you do about it? You know what Satan tries to get us to do? He tries to get us to go to this brother and say, hey, did you notice that there's this problem with the pastor? Have you noticed that he, he just seems to be lazing off? And then you talk to this brother, and then you start having a prayer meeting about it. And you know what happens sooner or later? The pastor has to leave because the whole church family is torn apart. And some of the people are really committed to the pastor, and some of them aren't committed because they think he's lazy. And the whole church is torn apart like scissors. It's cut right in half. You say, oh, that could never happen. It happens all the time. You know why it happens? Because nobody has the courage to trust their neighbor. You know what it means to trust your neighbor? If I'm ever flaking off, you know who I want you to talk to? Me. If you ever think I'm flaking off, you come and talk to me. Because that's what I need. I need you. I need the men in this church. I need the women in the church. I need all of you. You need me. And you need me to deal with you in confidence. I'm using myself as an illustration not because this has come up. My own life, it's never come up. I don't, I, I don't think the Lord thinks I can handle it very well. But it could. And it does come up with others. And I want all of you to ask yourself, do you plot harm against a neighbor? You know what it means to plot harm against a neighbor? You lose your trust in your neighbor. You don't believe in him or her anymore. And what do you do? You start talking to this individual and that individual. 
The book of Proverbs says, don't ever do that. Why? Because friendship is built on security. You see, if you're my friend, I trust you. I've even told when I've gone away and spoken, I said, I really believe there's, there's men and women in that church that would be willing to die for me. And hopefully I would for you. Because that's what a family of brothers and sisters is about. And if we have that kind of family commitment to one another, then let's watch our tongues. Don't plot harm against a neighbor. And you are. You are if you don't deal with your neighbor face to face. And I'm talking about a very strategic thing because it's the hardest thing for you to do and the hardest thing for me to do. In fact, many great men that I've met, some of the most powerful preachers that I know, they can go face to face with 2,000 people and love it, but they can't go eyeball to eyeball with one man or one woman in a time of confrontation. And they plot harm instead. They ignore, they talk, and people kind of ooze away. And it's wrong. Isn't the book of Proverbs getting into Monday morning living? Boy, it gets into my life. And all you need to ask yourself today, is there a neighbor that I'm plotting harm against? Is there a neighbor that I don't love like a brother and sisters in Christ? Is there a neighbor that I need to go to because I have a problem within and I need to confront them? If I don't get satisfaction then, then I need to bring others in to try to restore them, not to harm them. I might even have to bring an entire church family in to try to restore, not to harm, because we never, never, never dissolve this friendship, trusting, brotherly, sisterly relationship. And boy, have the Lord taught that in the Old Testament. Then how much more does he teach it that we become members of this beautiful, Christ-like body of Christ, the bride of Christ for which Christ died? All you need to ask yourself, am I plotting harm against my neighbor? Don't plot harm against that individual who is depending upon you, who trusts you. Neighborhoods, churches, cities, schools are built on trust. Don't ever plot harm against your neighbor. Thirdly, beware of, I'll see you in court. You know what my first response is? Let's go to court! How many of you have ever felt that way? Come on, you all have. Watch out for that. Our whole society right now is being torn apart. Let's go to court. You can listen to some of the dumbest cases you've ever heard. Because our whole society says, if I can make a buck, I go to court. Now, sometimes you have to go to court when you hate to. It's not saying, don't you know, don't ever go to court. In fact, it says if you've, if you've done wrong, if you've gotten in a bad deal, if you've really done wrong, get out of it as quick as you can. Go and scream and holler and kick and yell and bug them to death and get out of it. Pay them off. Do it quick. But what it says in this text here is, don't go to court if someone hasn't done you any harm. It says, don't accuse a man for no reason when he's done you no harm. And one of, the, one of the applications of this verse, the word that's used of accuse is a courtroom word. Don't have a reeve. Don't have a court case against someone for no reason. Be fair. You know, there's an amazing little phrase. If I were in their shoes, what would I think? Works in a marriage a lot. It works in business dealings. Not saying you don't ever go to court, but don't ever, ever, ever go to court 
just to make a buck. You say, oh, I would never do that. It's a temptation. And we can easily do it. And oh, how we need to be careful of that. And it's a shame. The courts are ordained of God. The governments are ordained of God. And we need to be very careful that we use the government for proper just causes. The Monday morning world. Don't, don't go to court lightly. Beware of, I'll see you in court. Beware of nice guys finish last. And I close with this. Some of you are sitting there saying, David, what you're talking about, the tomorrow fraud. Man, I know people that are always putting off. They make thousands upon thousands of dollars on the interest. In other words, by putting their employees off for about 15 days, they're able to invest the money out there in L.A. or in New York City, make uh, several million dollars on a big payroll. Then they come back. Man, it works. You've you got to be nuts. You just don't know. That old proverbial stuff belonged back in the dark ages. You're right. In the unbelieving world, it's not going to be the principles they follow. It's not going to be what they live by. But you need to ask yourself in the final reckoning, which side do you want to be on? Second of all, you say, David, you've got to realize sometimes you've got to watch out for yourself. I know it might violate a friendship. I know that people might be counting on me. But man alive, I just got a big offer. I just got a big offer. Man, these people are, are saying, listen, we'll pay you $75,000 a year. You're only making a measly, you know, $15,000. Now, man, you need to watch out for your family. Go for it, even if it means letting people down. Don't ever do it. It might work fine in this life, but that's not the final reckoning. I make my decisions based upon Heavenly Father. I'm going to stand before you. I'm standing before you right now. Here I am. I want to do what's right in my heart. And one of the top priorities of my life is don't let your friends down. Don't let people down when they're depending upon you. And I hope that'll be one of the bedrock values. I share with you honestly from my heart. That's one of the strongest principles in my life. And I've made strong decisions based upon I will not let my friends down when they're depending upon me. I will not abandon them when they need me. And I trust with all my heart the Holy Spirit will engrave that on your heart and pray that I will be consistent with that. Thirdly, beware of I'll see you in court. I know people make big killings. But what the Proverbs close with is ultimately we reckon not with man, not with corporations, but with the sovereign God. And he says this, the Lord's curse is on the house of the wicked. He blesses the home of the righteous. God will mock. If there's mocking, God will mock you. But he gives grace to the humble. The wise will inherit honor, but fools he holds up to shame. When I'm tempted to waffle, I remember I'd rather be on God's side in this life and poor and abused and hurt than to reject him and have all the money this earth can offer and be under his curse, become an abomination, become rejected by him. I don't want God mocking me.